0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in the book of Hebrews, and we are in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10, as we are dealing with our Savior and his high priesthood. He is a high priest. He is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is uh, the, the blessings of what we have to study, and it's not easy to study. a matter of fact, when you get into Melchizedek, you get into some pretty deep things. And uh, we read about this in uh, the next paragraph down, verses 11 and following. Concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. There are aspects of Scripture that are deeper than other aspects of Scripture. And, of course, with any passage from the Word of God, you want to be in fellowship. So let's take a moment for silent prayer, make sure that uh, distractions are set aside, that we're humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning just so thankful, thankful for your grace, thankful for your truth, Rejoicing over the privilege that we have to study, to show ourselves approved. Father, I thank you that you've not designed this life. You've not designed it in such a way that we are um, mice, you know, finding our way blindly through a maze, just trying to smell our way to some cheese somewhere. Father, uh, you've given us the Word of God. You've laid out in Scripture that which is uh, necessary, that which is pleasing in your sight, Father, all things pertaining to life and godliness have been so richly provided for each one of us today. I thank you for uh, our Bibles. I thank you for freedom that this land provides, for a Bible church such as this to, uh, to exist. And so, Father, we call upon your faithfulness yet again to uh, hedge us about, protect us, hinder anyone that would want to come in here and bring us to harm. But, Father, uh, bless us in your word this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we talk about the days of his flesh, in verse 7 we have the days of his flesh. Do you remember the days of your flesh? All right, well, during the days of his flesh. Think back to the bygone days. I mean, I can think back to college days or think back to army days or think back to uh, jail days. I used to work in the jail, all right? Uh, Some of... Don't go there, all right? (laughs) Think back to some of those days, the days gone by, okay? For Jesus, it was the days of His flesh. Because, of course, God the Son is eternal, even as God the Father is eternal and God the Holy Spirit is eternal. And He did. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And so He did have days of His flesh in terms of His first Advent walk born in we often say 4 bc or 6 bc in there sometime died in 33 a.d when he went to the cross and when he rose again on the third day and so for about 40 years he walked this earth called the days of his flesh and he offered up both prayers and supplications now He was not yet appointed, or he was appointed, but not yet in office as the high priest. So what we're going to talk about is when did he begin his high priestly ministry? And uh, this chapter and the following chapters will help us with this. But he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. And so we're going to discuss the nature of prayer and the nature of the guarantee of how do we know we've been heard and uh, what does the Father do when He hears in uh, the application there. Notice He was heard, but the answer was still no. The Father was able to save Him from death, but the Father did not save Him from death. God the Father said, no, you must die. And this is part of the redemption for humanity, that Jesus Christ had to die so that you and I could have eternal life. And so we're going to learn about a prayer life that does not get what we want. And that prayer is bigger than just, give me, give me, give me, give me. That, Father, I need more money. I need a better job. I need a prettier wife. I need a... Whatever it is that people pray for with respect to that, okay? And they always pray for healing, for example. But what if it's not the will of God? What if it's not his will to heal you? What if it's his will for you to continue to suffer? What if this disease is unto death? Are you going to be faithful until death? See, and uh, we learn to say, not my will, but thine be done. And that's the pattern. And that's what we see here. And so we have the days of his flesh indicating the time frame of the incarnation. The word incarnation comes from the Latin. It means in the flesh, that the word became flesh, that it was God, the son incarnate, God in the flesh. Uh, Hebrews ten five says a body you have prepared for me. And Jesus is the only human ever that preexisted his birth. The rest of us Uh, began when we began. We had our Genesis with our parents and we were birthed and that was our beginning, but not so for Jesus. Jesus is the one and only human that ever uh, had an existence prior to his birth. And we're clear on that. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Now notice he was not heard because of his loud crying and tears. He was not heard because of his volume. He was not uh, heard because of his tearfulness. Uh, We cannot bribe God. Our prayers are not more effective the more we cry. (laughs) All right? And our our requests don't become more effective if we blubber about it more and more. All right? That works in the human realm. Okay? I have two sons, two daughters, and, and they learned, and I had to learn, when, when you say no, and then they start crying, and they say, but daddy, and then, oh, and the little girl can just melt your heart, because they're just tiny versions of, of your wife, and they got those big brown eyes, and they're crying, no, I said no, okay, and no is still no, even with the tears, mostly, <laughs> all right, it's tough, but God, of course, is not partial. God, of course, is not swayed. It's not the tears. It's the piety. And What is piety anyway? And the piety is the humility that Jesus was willing to set aside his desire and to say, not my will, but thine be done. That's piety. Piety is when you say, Father, I would like this, but if that's not your will, then take it far from me. If that's not your will, then give me what I need. See, give me what your plan calls for right? And that's a mark of humility. George, not George Strait, um, Garth Brooks had that song about unanswered prayer. But it wasn't really unanswered prayer. He was at a high school reunion and he saw an old girlfriend that he was so thankful that God didn't let him marry that girl, right? That was the whole point to unanswered prayer, the Garth Brooks song. And that God overrules and says no, you're not going to marry that girl, you're going to marry this girl. And in the song, the guy had the perspective to think back with appreciation and go, wow. God, you saved my life, okay? Uh, That that God knows what He's doing and what He's doing there. That's not an unanswered prayer. The answer is, no, I have something better for you. And that's what we need to rejoice in. So now, we ran out of time because I I truly did. I put 100 verses up there to read, or or, uh, 31 and 36, what's that, 67 verses. There's a lot to read in Psalm 22, there's a lot to read in Psalm 69, and we got kind of ran out of time in, uh, in Psalm 22 last week. So let's, uh, let's look at Psalm 69, and we'll move on from here. How about that? And I'm not going to read all 36 verses to you, but I do want to skim them, and I do want to uh, hit the highlights and show you these things, because there's nothing like it. Our Bible is unique. There's nothing like it in the Book of Mormon or the Koran or the Vedas or any other religious book you want to shake a stick at. The Bible is unique in the fact that the cross was uh, portrayed a thousand years ahead of time. David was a thousand years BC. And yet, when you read Psalm 22, it's like reading Jesus on the cross. When you read Psalm 69, it's like reading Jesus on the cross. And these. Um, the ministry of jesus christ was foreshadowed by the uh, the life of david and so uh, we see it here psalm 69 save me o god for the waters have threatened my life i have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold i have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me and so here's david very christlike in his suffering very christlike in knowing that his only hope is the lord I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. (laughs) Okay? And uh, think about it. Who was more hated than Jesus? Okay? David was the greatest type of Christ anywhere in the Old Testament and the most hated. That's not an accident. Um, And so he describes it here. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies." What I did not steal, I then have to restore. Do you have to pay a price for something you didn't do? Jesus did. Jesus paid a price and he didn't do it. He wasn't on the cross for his own sins. He was on the cross because you and me were the sinners. Oh God, it is you who knows my folly. My wrongs are not hidden from you. Of course, that's David, not Jesus. And as we work our way through here, we notice this and we notice the hostility. Notice verse 8. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Hated by his brethren. Joseph's another one in the Old Testament. Hated by his brethren. Jesus hated by his brethren. Can you imagine if your older brother is the perfect son? How tough is that growing up? And, And none of those boys were saved until after the resurrection. I've become estranged from my brother's an alien to my mother's son. Why do you think it is when when the Apostle John is hanging on the cross, he entrusts Mary to the Apostle John? He says, you've got to take care of my mother, right? To the Apostle John, because these brothers, these knucklehead brothers of Jesus, they were not saved. They were not in a position where they could take care of their own mother. Then it says in verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Does that sound familiar? This is the passage from Psalm 69. That's Psalm 69 9. This is the passage that the disciples remembered. When Jesus was flipping over tables and driving out the money changers and whipping them, you know, whipping them up and releasing the birds and all the things he was doing there. He saw what they were turning the temple into, how they had turned the temple into this marketplace, into a den of thieves. And it was the application of Psalm 69 9. And the disciples remembered this. In any event, there's, uh, there's so much here, and yet uh, in the uh, foreshadowing of this, as you glance down here, um, verse uh, 16, answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. And so again, we have a vision of the cross, just like in Psalm 22 and all the adversaries that are surrounding him. And uh, you know my reproach and my dishonor. Verse 20, reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. All the disciples had fled away. The only ones at the foot of the cross were mocking Him. For comforters, but I found none. They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. That's Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-one. A thousand years before the cross. And here's David writing about it. Writing about the experience of what Jesus was, was going to go through on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. As far as we know, in the life of David, this literally never happened to him. This literally never—he he was never given vinegar to drink. He was never crucified, literally, but in vision he saw it and he wrote about it in two different psalms. And so, uh, other uh, other verses here as well. Uh, let me just skip down. He knows there's going to be an answer. He knows there's going to be praise. He knows that on the other side of this test is going to be glory. Verse 29, I'm afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. Notice he doesn't say, I don't like this, make it go away. He doesn't say, I don't like this, it's wrong. Make it stop. I don't deserve this. I shouldn't be here. He knows what it's going to produce on the other side of the cross. On the other side of the cross, may your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. He looks forward to seeing how the answer comes and what the praise is going to be. All right, well, you can read the rest of that if you like. There's 36 verses there in Psalm 69. Before we read that, though, read the 31 verses in Psalm 22. It starts, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we uh, looked at a lot of those verses last week. Notice, though, the one able to save him from death did not save him from death. The one able to save him from death did not save him from death. Are we clear on that? He was able to, and Jesus as much confessed that in his prayer in Matthew 26. Is it possible? Let this cup pass from me. Praying to the one able, you know, God is able to uh, to heal my father. He so far has not chosen to do so. God is able to cure my mother's cancer. He chose to take her to heaven. Does that mean he doesn't love me as much? He's able, okay? Don't confuse ability with willingness and don't confuse ability with the plan of God that glorifies Jesus Christ to the maximum. God the Father is uh, populating heaven with mature believers. He wants His Son to have a mature bride able to withstand uh, adult capacity type testing. All right, He doesn't want to populate heaven with a bunch of spiritual babies that uh, had never been tested in anything in their life. That's not a bride suitable for his son. So in Matthew 26, here's Jesus going into the garden to pray. And he wants his disciples to pray with him. So uh, Matthew 26, in verse 36, we're told the name of the place is Gethsemane. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that'd be James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. It's not sin. It's not wrong under these kind of testing circumstances. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. You ever have a test that was so bad and you figured that physical death was preferable? That this test is so unbearable that you contemplate suicide, you think, you know, I, I just can't handle it anymore that uh, the only way to make this test stop is if I wasn't alive anymore? Grieved to the point of death. God takes us through those things. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Who's with us? Who's walking with us every step of the way? Okay? So you're not sinning to be that depressed. You're not sinning to talk about it. But you've got to give it to the Lord and leave it there. All right? You've got to keep your eyes fixed on God. And say, God, I'm considering an option that shouldn't be an option. Put my mind where it needs to be. Don't let me dwell in this thing over and over and over again. And so um, he's praying this way. And he's warning his disciples about this. And so and then in verse 39, it goes on a little beyond them. And he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, the language of possible is the language of able. It's the same potential language. If it is possible, as he's praying to the God who is able to save him from death. And is it possible? If it is possible, let this cup pass from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. And he says, not as what's possible, but what you choose, what you choose in your good pleasure. Whether it's possible or not, what you choose in your good pleasure, that's the issue, okay? Because it's possible for Jesus to not go to the cross, but what are the consequences? If Jesus does not go to the cross, what are the consequences? Yeah, we don't get saved. That's right. If Jesus does not go to the cross, then there is no salvation that remedies the fall of Adam. Remember, the first Adam died. The second Adam gives us eternal life. And so if the second Adam does not have victory on the cross, then we are all of us still dead in our trespasses and sins. The human race is eternally lost. So is the father able to save the son? Yes. But at what cost? What are the consequences? Is the son able to disobey the father? Okay. What are the consequences if he does so? All right, And so when he says, not as I will, but as you will, that's a, that's a confession right there. That he has a will, he has a desire that is different from the Father's will and the Father's desire, and he has to subject that will to the Father's will. That his personal preference is not to die on the cross. He doesn't want to. But the Christian way of life is not what we want to. (laughs) It's what we will do, what He wants us to do as we stay obedient to Him. And so uh, He comes back to the disciples. He finds them sleeping. So He says to Peter, you couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? Man, how much sleep do you need? Come on, Peter. This is important. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I think that's significant. The the weak point in the hypostatic union, it was not the deity, of course. It's the true humanity, and it's the Word made flesh. What was the nature of his humanity? What was the nature of his physical body? That it got hungry. It had had weaknesses. It had the struggles that physical bodies have. So he went away again a second time and prayed, My Father... If this cannot pass away unless I drink it. Now, you see the slight difference in the terminology there? If it cannot pass away unless I drink it. So, the only can or maybe or possibly or might be is if he drinks it. Well, then, okay, I'll do it. Your will be done. Your will be done. This is why he was heard because of his piety. All right, his piety was such piety is not an emotional thing. Piety is not a fervent devotion. Piety is not a, ooh, I really, 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 really love you, God. Okay, piety. I mean, if you have three reallys, is that more than two Two reallys? Somebody with five reallys who really, 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 really loves God. Okay, <laughs> something else I did with my little girls when they were small. Anyway, if it cannot, your will be done. And that's what he's saying. Your will be done. He was heard because of his piety. understand piety is not an emotion. Piety is reverence or fear. It is reverence before the Lord. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He was heard because of his piety. Mindful, and I think this is key too, we read it already, Mindful of his accepted finitude. What do I mean by that? His accepted finitude. The state of being finite. That he lessened himself. He emptied himself. We studied in the Philippians, right? The, the, when the Word became flesh, what did he do? He laid aside his privileges, he operated in a, on a finite basis. He didn't stop being God, but he stopped exercising all the prerogatives of being God. So he stopped using his omniscience. He stopped using his omnipresence. He stopped using his omnipotence. He stopped using all of his omni-attributes, all of his divine essence. And he voluntarily accepted the finitude of humanity, of you and me, of our walk. We are finite in our walk which means we're living one day at a time, or walking one day per day, we're, we're trusting in the Lord. Okay? This is what he did. He accepted it. Mindful of his accepted finitude and surrendering his will to the will of God. You and I have no option. We have to do this. He made the choice to voluntarily do this. Okay? Think about how easy it would be. I probably wouldn't have been in that car wreck two weeks ago if I'd have had omniscience, okay? If I'd have had omnipresence, I could have gone to lunch and stayed home and not even driven. All right? But see, if you know the future or if you know the outcome of a test or if you know right now you're going through a test and you don't know how it's going to turn out and you don't know how it's going to turn out and so you want to stay faithful, you want to trust the Lord. And if you could tap into a little bit of omniscience, just once, just kind of peek forward in time and see, well, how does this work out? When does this work out? When does the answer come? Okay, that's cheating. And we're not allowed to do that. We can't do that. So Jesus didn't do that, not once. His walk of humility was entirely trusting upon God the Father. And then when he got little glimpses of insight, it was as an Old Testament prophet given glimpses and insight, not Flashes of of omniscience from time to time. He never cheated in any test he ever faced. That becomes important too. All right. We'll talk some more about that as well. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. He had to learn. Yes, he's omniscient, but he's not using his omniscience. so he's going to learn. Experientially, he's going to learn. Experientially, he's going to learn the way we learn. A little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. He has to learn in his humanity, never once utilizing his divine attributes. And although he was a son, that doesn't exempt him. He doesn't claim privilege. He doesn't say, do you know who I am? <laughs> do you know who my father is? All right. <laughs> uh, I got to uh, meet a general's daughter one time. And uh, I, I did not know, I knew who her father was. I'd never met him until this night. And she was drunk. And uh, I took her home. Took her to meet her father. <laughs> and uh, Decisions beyond my pay grade happened after that. All right? Do you know who my father is? Because if you have an important father, then you may not have things happen that other people have happen. There may be perks. There may be strings pulled. There may be paperwork that disappears. There may be MPs that don't talk about it until 25 years go by. Okay? Do you know who my father is? Although he was a son, that didn't exempt him. He didn't claim a privilege. He didn't claim that he wasn't worthy. To uh, who, Why should he suffer? What did he do? He learned obedience. So, so here's the key. When you and I want to pull rank, when you and I want to claim privilege, when you and I claim, well, I don't deserve that. You know, who do I think I am? If I say I don't deserve something, are you kidding me? But this is what we do. As humans, we do this. As carnal humans, we do this, okay? I think it's just as fallen humans, we do this. We start to think that we're better than that. We don't deserve that. Why should I I have to do this? I don't like doing this. I'm better than this. I I deserve better than this. Or why don't I have that? Why does he have that? Why does he get that? I should get that. And so we start getting jealous about what other people have, that we think they don't deserve that. I deserve that. I'm a better Christian than them. I know more Bible verses than them. I've preached more sermons than them. Why do they get, you know? And we start on this relative scale to think we've earned or deserved something when I've deserved the lake of fire. I deserve the lake of fire. I'm saved by grace, okay? And so although he was a son, he learned the Gethsemane suffering equipped him to undertake the Golgotha substitutionary atonement. He learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And it's curious to me, because it reached a pinnacle, the night in which he was betrayed, it reached a pinnacle in Gethsemane. There was other sufferings that led up to that, of course. There was tons of suffering. He had a a life of suffering. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Men from whom uh, you know, we hide their face. I'm going to look at Isaiah 53 here in a moment. He suffered throughout his earthly walk, but it reached the crescendo in Gethsemane. It reached the crescendo when he was in prayer with his father. That's the pinnacle of his sufferings. It happened in prayer with his father when he came to learn the totality of what it would mean to be separated from his father. Gethsemane, from nowhere else did he sweat great drops of blood. Okay, When he was being scourged, when he was being mocked, when they put the crown of thorns on him, when everything else was happening, it was in prayer to his father that he sweat great drops of blood. He faced the pinnacle of his sufferings in Gethsemane, and that qualified him to go to Golgotha. If he's not victorious at Gethsemane, he's not qualified for Golgotha. I want to be clear on that. Isaiah 53.11. Let's look at Isaiah 53. To me, it's one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible. And most Jewish people have got Jewish friends. They don't even know this chapter is in their Bible. It never comes up in their synagogue readings. It never shows up in their uh, in, in their homes. Isaiah 53. And I'm headed for verse 11, but the whole chapter is about the suffering of our Savior, about the, the servant. In fact, you could even back up to chapter 52. And see the aspects of the servant there. In verse 13 of 52 says, My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Well, Why is that? Why is he worthy of being lifted up and exalted? Because he humbled himself. And uh, yeah, 52.13 gets in a lot of praise choruses. My servant will be high and lifted up. But Why? Why? Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Because he was humble, he was exalted. In his sufferings, he submitted to the will of God. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. It's only the Jewish nation that was given the prophecies of the coming Christ. So who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Remember, it goes from shoot to root to branch. And here's the shoot. Here's the humility. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He would not thrive in American politics today, (laughs) okay? He would not be the tall, dark, and handsome and all the telegenic, you know, teleprompter reading statement, you know, all of that. Didn't have any of that. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. And it goes on to describe what he does here. He's the the substitute. He's the sacrifice in our place. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. He's the substitute in our place. We're the sinners, we should have been on the cross. He took our place. It was our transgressions that he accepted. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There is nobody sinless. Nobody. I've met people that claim to be. (laughs) I'm not a sinner. Really? Ever? And then, oh, well, of course, I mean, everybody does, but you know, as a rule, I'm basically a good person. I don't care about that. It's not, are you basically a good person? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You break one aspect of the law, you violated the whole law. One sin. And you don't qualify. It's a lamb without spot or blemish that goes to the cross, that purchases our redemption. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. All right? And this is our Savior who goes to the cross. And when you get down to verses 10 and 11, we've got to understand this now. And this was 700 years ahead of time. Isaiah was 700 B.C. Writing about the cross 700 years ago. Yahweh, the Lord, was pleased to crush him, putting him to Grief. This was the father's good pleasure. Now he's able to deliver him from death, but does that please him? Would that please the father to spare the son? The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. So notice, The father is willing to crush the son, but the son must be willing volitionally from his own priesthood, from his own perspective. He must be willing to carry the cross. He must be willing to be the sacrifice. If the son's not willing, the father's not willing. Are we clear on that? Can't be grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. So Yahweh is pleased as the father is pleased to crush the son putting him to grief if he, the son, would render himself as a guilt offering. When Abraham and Isaac walked up the mountain together, Isaac was carrying the wood. Okay? That's significant. So he will see if he will render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He must be faithful unto death, and the Father will exalt him. Now, verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Understand what this is saying. And this is the main point, and it goes with Hebrews five eight. all right? As a result of the anguish of his soul, that's the son's soul, that's God the son, because the son accepts the anguish. The son accepts the crushing, putting him to grief. That's that's Gethsemane. He said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Pray with me. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, the father, will see it and be satisfied. This gives us the, the rationale, the basis for the doctrine of propitiation. God, the father, is satisfied. Why is the father satisfied? He's satisfied with the Son, not only for doing the work on the cross, but being qualified to do the work on the cross. Being qualified to do the work on the cross by accepting the suffering in Gethsemane the night before. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, by his knowledge, what knowledge is this? Well, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Again, Hebrews 5.8. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Read that again. Read it again and again. Write it down and read it 20 times this week. By His knowledge. See, until he learns obedience through the things that he suffers, the sinless Lamb of God is not suited to be the justifier. He's still sinless, he's still perfect, he's still the spotless Lamb, but until he acquires this experiential knowledge, he's not equipped to be the Melchizedek high priest. He's not equipped to be the justifier. In his sacrifice. So it's a notice again, verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, it was productive, it did something. God's not a masochist, He's not torturing Jesus for no reason. He is putting Jesus through the maximum infinite soul suffering, but it has a consequence. The Father is satisfied that the son now has the required knowledge to be the justifier. The required knowledge whereby he can do the work of redemption voluntarily and not under compulsion. So as a result of the anguish of his soul, the Gethsemane suffering had a purpose. It has a consequence. And by his knowledge, the knowledge itself is instrumental. By his knowledge... The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. If he does not acquire that knowledge, he can't be the justifier. Are we clear? He can still be sinless. He can still be perfect. He can still be the spotless lamb without spot or blemish. He can still be the sacrifice. But what qualifies him to be the priest? What qualifies him to be the redeemer, to be the Melchizedek high priest, to be the justifier? You say, oh, those are two different things. Oh, I get it now. Being sinless and perfect qualifies him to be the offering, but it's this suffering and it's this knowledge that qualifies him to be the offerer. Make sense? Got that? All right. He will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore... I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself, that is his soul, to death. He said, not my will but thine be done. His soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. He accepted the will of the Father. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Wow. Wow. <laughs> he's hanging on the cross and praying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Interceding even as he's dying. Gethsemane, suffering, equipped him to undertake Golgotha, substitutionary atonement. Golgotha, by the way, is the other name for Calvary. Okay, we, Calvary shows up in more hymns. It rhymes better. <laughs> Golgotha is the Aramaic, And uh, I like it because it is a G and Gethsemane has a G. And I just remember the two G's, Gethsemane and Golgotha. All right. Understand this. Omniscience knows everything, but the humanity of Jesus Christ learned experientially and grew through that experience. The pinnacle of humility producing the pinnacle of exaltation. Omniscience knows everything. You know, if I had omniscience, I'd be a better Scrabble player. <laughs> if, I had a, if I was omniscient, that I would, you know, look at my rack and I know immediately what all the bingos are with those seven tiles. But I'm not omniscient. And so I've got to learn, I've got to study, I've got to drill more and more anagrams, more and more racks and more and more things to see different patterns. You've got to learn. You can't just tap into omniscience and go, oh, here's a word that nobody ever heard of before and it's real. And uh, yeah, wouldn't it be great to just know everything? I'd have a higher Scrabble rating than I have today. Okay? Jesus does know everything, but he voluntarily chose to lay aside his pre-incarnate knowledge. He voluntarily chose to enter into the womb of Mary and to limit what he knows, to limit his active knowledge to what he learns experientially from childbirth on. What he learned experientially is what he limited his active knowledge to. Okay? And that's kind of boggles the mind, doesn't it? I mean, can you can you not know something that you already know? Well, sovereignly enough, omnipotently enough, God did that. Jesus Christ chose to take all of His pre-incarnate knowledge, which was everything, and to set it aside. And to function in His incarnation, to function through the life of the flesh, only based upon what He learned experientially. The experiential knowledge. Luke 2.52, Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. In Luke, he grows up. He stays in subjection to his parents, and he grows up. Even though he's dazzling all the PhD type guys, and he's 12 years old, and he's better than these uh, university professors. How did he get so smart? Not because he's omniscient. And this is curious to me, too. This is where, you know, he stays three days and they find him in the temple. They thought he was in the caravan. And, and, and then he's shocked. His mom says, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. But he said to them, Why is it you were looking for me? He's asking a question that he doesn't know the answer to because he's not using his omniscience. Jesus doesn't know all the things he hasn't learned yet. Including, why is it you were looking for me? He didn't know they were looking for him. Oh, you've been looking for me? When? Three days now? Why have you been looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? It's another question he doesn't know the answer to. And he doesn't know that they didn't know, right? He didn't know that they didn't know. And he didn't know because he wasn't using omniscience. His knowledge was limited to what he had experientially learned, and he's actually factually incorrect. He doesn't have to be about his father's business, not yet, not for twelve more years, not for eighteen more years. He's not going to stand for baptism until the age of thirty. okay He's premature. he's a young man, he's eager he's, he's got work to do. he wants to get get doing it. It's too early. You're not ready yet. And of course, every young man thinks he's ready. Sure, I'm ready. But he's only 12. He doesn't know. Okay? And then just because he's factually incorrect, or dare I say it, Jesus was wrong. He didn't sin. He didn't sin. If you say something or don't know something, if you're wrong about something, you're just wrong about something. He didn't sin. You're just wrong about something. Didn't have all the information. Oh, I'm not supposed to leave home yet. Okay. And so they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. So he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. Since they weren't ready for him to leave home yet. (laughs) And he said, hmm, I must not be ready to leave home yet. It's not the will of God yet. See, once he realizes they didn't know, he was fine. He's on board with it. So he stays in subjection to them. But Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor, that's grace, with God and with men. So he continues to grow. He continues to grow. And that's the nature of it. The humanity of Jesus Christ learned experientially and grew through that experience. The pinnacle of humility producing the pinnacle of exaltation. See, you know, In suffering, you learn things you don't learn otherwise. When you and your wife go through some tough tests together, you learn some things about each other that you never learned when you were dating. Why is that? Well, because when you're dating, you're not going through these tough things together. Okay? Testing, you learn things. You learn things about yourself. You learn things about the Lord. You learn things about the Word of God. You learn things that even though you knew them academically, now you have a deeper understanding of them because, oh, that's what it means. (laughs) Okay. Power is perfected in weakness. I get that now. I mean, 2 Corinthians said that, but now I get it. Now I experience it. Now I have the experiential knowledge of how this works. And so... Philippians 2 is the, the kenosis we've been talking about. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus Christ has always been God the Son. He always been God. But unlike Satan, who felt he could grab it, Jesus let it go. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of man. Talk about humility. When you're omnipresent and you limit yourself to monopresence, and for nine months that monopresence is very dark in the womb, (laughs) okay? Wow. I don't need to be omnipresent, just bi present. I'd be content to be bi present. I don't need omnipresence. All right. So, um, laid aside his privileges, took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isn't that beautiful? Read through Philippians 2 sometime, verses you know, 1 through 11, 8 through 11, 5 through 11. He humbled himself and he kept on learning. Every time he humbled himself, he kept on learning. And the Garden of Gethsemane was the pinnacle. And with the humble, uh, the, that ultimate humiliation in the garden, he was ready to go to the cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him. If he doesn't humble himself to that extent, he doesn't get glorified. He doesn't receive the Melchizedek priesthood. Okay? The decree was before the foundation of the world, but the bestowment was in his victory. Okay? In his victory on the cross. So, or the victory in Golgotha in Gethsemane, he he functioned as a priest at, uh, at the cross. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. He gets that exaltation because he humbled himself. And yet you and I say, well, I I don't deserve that. I shouldn't have to go through that. What you're saying is you don't want to be an imitator of Christ and you want diminished reward for all eternity. Is that what you're telling me? You feel entitled to less suffering? You're worthy of less suffering? Wow, you're awesome. You're more worthy than our Savior. He wasn't worthy of less suffering. Why do you think you're worthy of less suffering? Hello? <laughs> All right. Now, having been made perfect, having been made perfect, Hebrews 5, verses 9 and 10 now, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered and having been made perfect. Whoa, wait a minute. I thought he was perfect. How do you perfect perfection? Having been made perfect. Yes, he's sinless. Yes, he's innocent. Yes, he's perfect. He is without spot, without blemish. He is perfect, but even in his perfection, he is still made perfect. Perfect. And the phrase, having been made perfect, is a participle that precedes the action of the main verb. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. The source, the origin, the cause, the explanation, the reason. In order to become the source, he can't become the source. He's still "Unless he's perfect. You know? Think of all the times Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. The burning bush was Jesus. The cloud, the pillar of fire, those were Jesus. The fourth man in the fire, that was Jesus. The angel of the Lord that flew over the armies of the Assyrians, that was Jesus. Every Christophany, or every theophany of the Old Testament, was Jesus. But the burning bush didn't go to the cross, couldn't go to the cross. The fourth man in the fire can keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego alive and bring them out of the fire. Jesus uh, shut the lion's mouth and fellowship with Daniel all night. Okay, Jesus can do all those things in pre-incarnate Christophanies, but he can't go to the cross until he learns, until he's perfected, until he learns obedience through the things which he suffered. Only then can the God-man in the flesh go to the cross. He has to condemn sin in the flesh. All of these things come together. Now there's a tremendous amount of theology in this. But having been made perfect, recognize that teleao, perfection, completion, that, doesn't, that does not imply that he was imperfect. Not at all. He was sinless, he was perfect but yet made perfect. Same thing with you and me, by the way. You and me are being perfected day after day as long as it's called today. You and me are being perfected. Philippians is going to tell us to forget what lies behind, reach forward to what lies ahead. That none of us should consider ourselves as having laid hold of it yet. But forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, we're to lay hold of that for which also we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That's our perfecting process. And we're not there yet. That's why you're in Bible class this morning. That's why you're studying to show yourself approved. That's why you're preparing yourself as a workman, needing not to be ashamed. So the perfect Son of God was made perfect. If you want to know how that happened, well, the text here tells us learning obedience from the things which he suffered. The participle in verse 9 is defined by the activity in verse 8 and it paves the way for the activity of the rest of verse 9. He became, he became. The perfect son of God was made perfect. And I don't know, maybe maybe just the worst thing that... I don't know. Maybe the worst thing for us is, is the English language. That we have a sense... That if you're already perfect, you can't be made perfect because you already are perfect, right? Maybe that's the biggest hang-up we have in, in English. But the idea that he is perfect, he is sinless, he is righteous, he is glorious, he is complete, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And yet he still has to be perfected through the through the learning of obedience, through the sufferings. Anyway, it's not a not an issue theologically, and maybe it's just a uh, hang up linguistically as far as we consider this. But the perfect Son of God was made perfect through the things that He suffered. And then we're the same way. So if we're not willing to be suffer, if we're not willing to be tested, if we're not willing to go through the difficult things in life, then that means we're not willing to be perfected. And if we're not willing to be perfected, then we're throwing away rewards. We're throwing away eternal rewards you realize that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared. It's such a short thing. such a small thing. A momentary light affliction that's not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. And yet how many Christians just throw it away because that momentary light affliction just seems so overwhelming. I don't like it. I don't want it. It hurts. Make it stop. And so believers are throwing away eternal rewards left and right. Throwing away infinite treasure for finite relief. How pathetic is that? When the provision is there in any event, no testing is beyond what we're able to bear. He provides the way of escape. He provides that we can endure it. He has supplied all things necessary for life and godliness, including enduring this present test I don't like and I don't think I can get through. He knows I can get through it because he put me into it. He's got a plan for getting me out of it. In any event, it's our perfection process, it's His perfection process. As I said, you know, the Father is preparing a bride for His Son. The church age will be the most tested age because we're the pinnacle. More than the Gentiles, more than the Jews, more than the millennial saints, more than even the fullness of time saints, we are suited to be a bride for His Son. Do you think he, he's just going to give any, any girl to his son? Most girls aren't worthy of his son, right? <laughs> like most boys aren't worthy of your daughters. Most girls aren't worthy of your sons. And parents get very particular about those kind of things. I just read Genesis 26. How, how particular was Abraham to make sure that he didn't take one of those Canaanite girls for Isaac. He sent his servant all the way back to Paddan Haram to find a girl that was one of their kinsmen, their distant kinsmen there, so that they could find Rebecca, bring Rebecca back, so that Rebecca could be the bride for Isaac. That bride for Isaac chapter is so powerful, and it teaches us the links that our Father will go through to find a bride suitable, Take a, taking a rib out of Adam and fashioning a bride suitable a helpmate corresponding to Adam. Well, what's the helpmate corresponding to the perfect son of God? The perfect bride. The perfected bride. So you bet we're going to be tested. You bet we're going to be suited. We're going to be equipped. God's not about, you know, taking a toddler, taking a child, taking a little girl that never grew up and said, well, okay, you could be my son's bride. No, he wants a mature bride, a powerful bride, one suitable to be a helpmate, one suitable to be the queen as the king sits on the throne. Read Psalm 45 sometime and see the queen that's suitable for the king. So we are perfected as well. Just as the word became flesh, the perfected sufferer became the source. The grounds, the basis for eternal salvation. The verb is Ginnomai, to become something you were not before. And just as the word became flesh, the suffering servant, the perfected sufferer, became the source, the grounds, the basis for eternal salvation. There's a tremendous amount of theology right there in verse uh, 9. Having been made perfect, he became, he became. If he doesn't become perfect, if he doesn't learn obedience through the things that he suffers, he does not become the source, the grounds, the basis. If he does not identify with us, if the second Adam does not have victory, there's no provision for the first Adam. And for those of us that are dead in Adam to become the source, to become the grounds, to become the basis. Think about it. Without the victorious second Adam, we're all in the first Adam. He must become the grounds, the basis, the source for eternal salvation. And it's once and for all. Once and for all. I love that. Through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. Guess what? Through one man, comes the resurrection from the dead through one man, through Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved to the uttermost. Once and for all, saved to the uttermost. You can't lose it. You can't throw it away. You did nothing to earn it or deserve it, so you can't do anything to undeserve it and throw it away. That's the eternal security of the believer, and I love it. The book of Hebrews is so clear. All right. Anyway, John 1:14 the word became there's a difference between was and became and I'm running out of time. But eternally was God, in the beginning was the word, the word eternally was God, the word eternally was with God. But then the word became flesh. Something he never was before. Becoming, becoming. We all can do this. Every last we all became. Everything that we say with an I am, we can rephrase with an I became. When I became married, when I became a father, when I became a pastor, when I became... Everything I became, I became at a point of time when prior to that I wasn't that. But then I became. None of us are I am."s There's only one I am in the universe. That's God. But the word became flesh. And the perfected sufferer became something he was not before. Before he became the perfected sufferer, there was no grounds for salvation. There was just a promise and an expectation and an anticipation. That's why believers who died didn't go to heaven in the Old Testament. They went to Abraham's bosom. Their sins were passed over. They were atoned. They were covered. They were not removed. They were not eternally forgiven. There was no grounds of salvation until the perfected sufferer became the grounds of eternal salvation. And then he can descend to Sheol and bring captivity captive and take uh, the many sons to glory. All right. Well, we're going to have to pick up on this next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, it uh, it is marvelous and wonderful to think about your son and what he accomplished on the cross, but before the cross, what he volitionally accomplished at Gethsemane when he accepted our guilt, when he accepted the sufferings. Father, when he was suited, when he learned obedience to the things that he suffered and he was suited to go to the cross. Thank you for these powerful scriptures, Father. Might we understand them, might we digest them, might we live them out might you open our eyes to the things that are expected of us. That Father, there are assignments in front of us and we don't know the half of it yet. But what we're being tested in now is suiting us for what's coming up. And we want to have eyes wide open, Father, so that we can volitionally be on board and be pleasing in your sight for all that you've called for us to do. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a